Welcome to the Commander-in-Chief Podcast. I'm Yuri Kruman, founder and CEO of Commander-in-Chief Media Group, award-winning chief people officer and keynote speaker, author of five books, Fortune 500 consultant and corporate trainer, and contributor to Fast Company, Forbes, Entrepreneur, and Newsweek. Our mission at Commander-in-Chief Media is to help 100 million people around the world in the next 10 years to do their life's best work in the here and now through storytelling, educational media, thought leadership, HR consulting, corporate training, coaching, speaking, and authentic high-quality writing, helping people become their own Commanders-in-Chief. Now, if you're interested in being a guest on the Commander-in-Chief podcast, Stick around until the end of the show. We will share with you what we're looking for and how to apply. Hey guys, welcome everybody to the Commander-in-Chief Podcast. I'm your host, Yuri Kruman, and I'm very excited today to have a conversation with my good friend, Ariella Saraf, the CEO of CoreLogics. I'll let him do his own intro. Uh, one of the things that I want to discuss today above all others, I think, is more kind of the people side of the business. So Ariel, please uh, feel free to do your intro. Hi, Yuri. Great to be here. Um, Ariel Asaraf, founder, CEO at CoreLogics. Uh, what we do is uh, stateful streaming analytics for logs, metrics, and security information, basically helping companies, companies with scale as they want to monitor and observe their systems and their cloud infrastructure, um, fix, uh, optimize, and protect. I think this might not be the most obvious kind of field, I think for a lot of people, this might be kind of a, a hidden treasure. Um, maybe if you could give us a sense of how you work with some of your clients and, you know, what are you pulling and what are you making with it? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, our space is mostly uh, high growth um, internet and SaaS companies. So a good example would be monday.com uh, where they collect all their information, their infrastructure, application data, security information, internal tooling, into CoreLogics, uh, we automatically analyze the data, cluster it, they can forward the data to any destination that they like, manipulate the data, present, visualize the data, and get proactive insights from CoreLogics. Uh, that helps them uh, both uh, reduce their mean time to detect and resolve of production issues, optimize their R&D processes with our CI/CD, uh, automatic benchmarks and pipeline uh, uh, observability, and protect their cloud environments uh, with our audit and uh, automatic uh, security alerting capabilities. It's a tool that basically becomes a data platform of the organization and all engineers, support teams, QA, uh, solution engineering are using uh, CoreLogics to get a, basically a source of truth to how their systems are behaving in production. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to translate that to myself because it's not always the most obvious thing. I know we've, we've spoken actually a greater length about what you guys do, but I think my listeners might might not be fully with what this is. So first of all, all companies these days generate massive amounts of data. And I think most companies, unless they're incredibly savvy and you know, with CoreLogics for a while and making sense of what's going on, they don't really know what, what the hell do they have. They're sitting on this, you know, this data, this this database, data, this CRM. What what is all this? What what can I make? What can I get out of this? Right. So here I am, uh, you know, an HR guy, and I think HR people, no no offense taken to any other uh, HR people, but HR is also something that sits on a ton of data. 
you know, and I would say maybe more sophisticated enterprises, maybe your Fortune 500 companies, they're you know a little bit more savvy about collecting data, whether it's you know performance metrics, whether it's recruiting data, you know, uh, talent acquisition pipeline, uh, or you know, uh, I don't know, the average tenure here, or you know, if you talk about Google, that's a whole other level, right? I mean, um, so basically, all kinds of different parts of the company, you know, again, if you're in finance and you're talking about business intelligence, that's that's a lot more advanced. If you're talking about HR, you're starting to maybe think about, hmm, what do I do with this? How do I optimize this? How do I make decisions, sound decisions based on data? You know, we're, we're catching up. Um, but the bottom line is there has to be some way to pull the data. There has to be some way to store the data. Maybe you want to do that on a private server. Maybe you want to do that some, somewhere in the cloud. Um, but you have to do something with it. So there has to be almost like a guide. There has to be someone who says, okay, here's what you have, here's the map, and here's what you can do with that data. We can help you make sense of that. So I think that's super valuable. Again, it's not the most obvious thing. It's not sitting on the surface. I, I love the the image of, you know, sell the pickaxes. Don't go prospecting for gold. Yeah. That's that's how you get there. So I think that's there's a little bit of that going on here. Cool. Um, one of the things I wanted to get into, um, you know, you're you're a brilliant guy. I mean, you've done so many different things. Um, why why choose this? Why why is this what you chose to build? You know, over the last few years. I think uh, I I was actually not planning this this route in my life, but uh, since since I, I enlisted the army, I joined the eighty two hundred uh, unit uh, to one of the departments that dealt with the. the the largest amount of data inside the unit. And uh, since, you know, I was 18, the, the entire challenge or all the challenges that I faced were data challenges. How do I create a report? How do I detect anomalies? How do I analyze um, things that are abnormal inside the data? And then when I left the Army and I joined Varian Systems, which is the Homeland Security Division, it was very much the same. And we started handling uh, nation-state size customers that had huge amounts of data and i'm not even talking about their data i'm talking about even how our systems operate and we need to analyze that data to give them the performance and obviously everything's mission critical and then uh there are there are a few areas where this was problematic first of all the speed the cost the level of proactiveness that you get the ease of use and this is why we started coralogics uh back in 2015 uh we went through uh complicated journey to get where, to, where we are today. And we had to reinvent ourselves a few times. Um, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, what brought me to this is that, that this is probably one of the biggest challenges that the, the tech world is, is facing today. Everything is a data platform or everything is a data problem. So whatever, you know, you mentioned HR or business information or financial information or security information or everything at at its core is a data problem. So I can talk about security information and, and cyber and try to look at it from a, a standpoint of, you know, I, I want to identify specific attacks. I want to let you know if someone is doing something abnormal or is breaking into your system. And I can describe it as just a list of rules, but it's actually a data platform or a data problem. Because to identify those set of rules, to identify something abnormal, to identify uh, a signature that is suspected, I have to digest all your information and I have to analyze all your information. I have to understand what is abnormal or to pick up your own criteria as to what is abnormal. 
and then I have to notify you, but I also have to present it in a way that makes you understand what's your next step or lets you continue to investigate. So everything basically that we're seeing today in, in the world is data problems that companies are trying to solve. And when you look at, so we have this philosophy here, when you look at the power of software and what software have become specifically in the past couple of years, and I think COVID gave us a, a very strong lessons about the importance of technology. You just think about a lockdown 30 years ago. How terrible would that be? I mean, people would have starved. People would have not known what to do with their lives, how to spend their day, how to educate themselves, how to treat themselves, you know, uh, uh, medically, how to, how to protect uh, their countries if you don't have satellites or anything. And, Everything was would have been much more common. I'm not even talking about inventing vaccinations and stuff, but the, the, the simple things, imagining yourself sitting at home, you can't work from home, you can't communicate with family, you can't order food, you can't uh, uh, basically uh, do you know critical stuff like communicating with the doctor or letting them examine you or ordering the medicine home. Everything was... So we got this nice glimpse into how the future is going to be like, where we'll rely our entire lives on technology and internet connection or whatever that might be a few years from now. And then you start thinking about what is, where's this power of software coming from? And our thesis here is that the power of software comes from the exponentiality of software. What I mean by that is the, the ease of replication and scale of technology. So imagine you're building, you know, an office building now. It'll look a lot like building a software. You build a foundation, you raise the funds, you bring the designer, you bring the architect. You know, you notice it's also the same words. The software architect, you bring the architect, and then you bring the construction workers and the developers, and they build it. And then you test it, and then you certify it, and then it's ready for people, right, to use. And then people start using the building or the software. There's a lot of small bugs and fixes. You make them the first year, and then it's stable. Now, let's say you want to have another building, just the same as this one. you got to pretty much start from scratch. And if you want to have this software serving double the people, you just deploy it again on another server. If you want it serving a million people, just deploy it again and again and scale it. That gives software exponential power over the physical universe that we live in. And that what makes software, you know, a lot of people look at software companies' valuation and they're like, why? How come this, you know, startup company trip action is worth more than Marriott? And, you know, Marriott has so many hotels, but the exponential power of trip actions, if it works the way it should and continues to grow the way it should, it's so much easier to scale it to millions and hundreds of millions of people rather marry it building 100,000 more hotels. So when you think about what is the single thing or the single or the few things that may prevent software from being exponential, it's maintenance, performance, and security. So, you know, the fact that you have a lot of buildings is great, but now you still need to protect all of them. 
that's not exponential. You still need to protect all those buildings. You still need to maintain. You have a million users, a lot more maintenance, a lot more support, a lot more bugs, a lot more scaling issues, a lot more security vulnerabilities and security issues. So that is at its core, going back to the data problem, the reason that data is so important in our future is if we enable smooth data analysis for isolating and solving issues faster, scaling and optimizing performance, protecting environments, protecting software, protecting the users, we enable software to be as exponential as it can be. That's where you generate that huge value to the world. You know, you look at big companies in our space, you look at Splunk, Splunk is like, you know, I don't want to talk about ourselves. Splunk is like a $25 billion company in our space. Leave the value that Splunk had created for their shareholders and, you know, obviously the founders for a company that, that, that uh, evaluation. Think about the wealth that Splunk has created for the world in its 20 years of existence, of existence enabling so much technology to be created and so many software products to be deployed and protected over the course of 20 years. And, you know, when I think about that, when I think about our customers, some of them really leading companies, I think like top, we have like 10 customers in, in Fortune 100. We're a tiny company still, like we're 100 people, but still we're, we're serving a massive amount of big companies, 1,500 paying accounts. That's already 1,500 companies that are using CoreLogix to deploy faster, protect, and that's the collective value that we bring to the software world is much bigger than our own value. And that is why, that is where I see the solving the data challenge as, as, as uh, something to, to really devote myself to. This is, this is beautiful. I've heard very few people explain things in such a thorough manner. I think, again, in our world, we don't think so much about infrastructure until it kind of hits us in the face or there's a hole in the wall in my case, <laughs> just wrote this up in my newsletter, we had a fire on our floor in our building. And, uh, you know, thank God we were okay. But again, you don't usually think about, hey, you know, fire alarms or sprinklers or, hey, you know, what is this building made of? Are there I-beams, right? Is it stable? Is this uh, earthquake resistant, right? You don't think about these things until there's a hole burned in the wall or, you know, something, there's a structural problem, God forbid, right? So... I think it's very, very important just to for people to understand that infrastructure has to, you know, follow certain first principles. Yes, there has to be design, there has to be architecture, there have to be workers that build all of this stuff, right? You can't just sort of be at the end consumer stage and, and sort of say, oh, okay, that's that's a lovely UI UX. That's awesome, beautiful, right? But what went into that long before there was any UI or UX to talk about? So I really I love how you formulated that. It's what enables that. So you think about, let's say you want to, you know, some people have disabilities and they can't go to school. So they have to learn remotely. Okay. You forget COVID. What is it that enables them to learn remotely? Is it just the software of the, the like the learning software or the, the teacher recording the lesson? It is a big part of it. But if you take out the infrastructure, let's say the video lags or gets stuck when they ask the question, the chat doesn't work properly. Or someone might break into their computer. And, you know, you remember at the beginning of COVID how many security issues were there in Zoom. Yeah. And then 
By the way, that's a great example because Zoom scaled. It was always there, but when it scaled and the entire world were using it, suddenly a lot of security vulnerabilities were figured because there are just more angles to attack. Because now there are like a million buildings to defend, not a hundred. But when you think of what will prevent me as a person who needs to, you know, study from home, what will prevent me to adopt technology is the fear of getting hacked or, you know, my information stolen. It's buggy software. It's uh, uh, software that lacks performance. Uh, that's that's where I lose. And then whatever you create as software, whatever great ideas people have and visions people have, you can't really make that happen. You can't really bring that to the world. So the infrastructure and, you know, cloud revolution is what Amazon had done and obviously later on Azure and GCP. What what cloud infrastructure had done is to bring the core or the basics infrastructure, the servers, the metal to everyone. You think about a company like ourselves, okay? We're you know, still a small company. There are like maybe 100 people in the office, okay? We have 1,200 servers. Now imagine it's all Amazon. Imagine I had to store 1,200 servers somewhere. You can't make it as a company. You can't even start because the very basic setup is like 100 servers. Do I do I come to a, an investor and say, hey, I need like $5 million to buy the equipment, and then I need a warehouse, and I need a security guard to guard it, and I need to build uh, uh, you know, air conditioning systems to keep my servers cool. I mean, that, that just wouldn't work. So what cloud had done, the reason cloud is so successful, because many people ask themselves, what if, you know, what is so exciting about cloud computing? You just took my servers and you put it somewhere else, you know. But yeah. the fact that it allows me to scale and not think about the layer of infrastructure, yeah. that's what promotes and creates innovation. So what we're trying to do is to make you not think about the data layer, not think about performance, not think about security. We'll monitor this for you. We'll visualize this for you. Not think about the cost, the massive cost it has. If you really wanted to do that, instead of the streaming analytics we do in real time without storage, if you wanted to store everything and yep. run queries on this, if you don't think about that, you can start really innovating faster, delivering faster. Beautiful. Yeah, there's there's obviously a lot more to say about this. I think we could go on for hours, but I think we won't. Uh, maybe another time we can sit down and talk about you know 5G and what that means. We can... Um, you know, we can we can talk about many other things related to infrastructure, but I want to I want to pivot here a bit. Um, one of the things that I think is most interesting, I mean, you, you mentioned infrastructure, right? So not every person is magically going to wake up and say, hey, yeah, I, I see through walls, right? No, <laughs> maybe that's your superpower. Maybe not. What I want to get into just a little bit is, you know, growing up, every person has some set of filters that they look at, you know, for example, for me, it's always been language and psychology, but you know what, I'm from a, you know, a Russian Jewish family and, you know, we're all about math and science and uh, I have to go and, you know, do MD, PhD and blah, blah, blah. And then you convince yourself, yeah, no, 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 I'm a math and science guy. And it's very important. It's infrastructure, mm -hmm. but you know, it's, it's not the primary filter for me, for me, that's yeah, language, psychology, history, whatever. So for you, I would love to just, if, you know, you've obviously done a lot of work in, in not just visualizing the outside world, not just visualizing infrastructure, but for yourself, you've done a lot of that work as well. So is there something you can share for our listeners that perhaps they can use to visualize their 
own infrastructure, right? Because there's often that click moment where you say, like, uh, you know, I spoke with Omer Kilov a couple months ago, and for him, he had a terrible accident that he and his family went through. And yeah, I mean, he's going through after being in a startup and he's like choosing from among 23 ideas. Number 18 is like this LIDAR thing that, you know, may help save lives because it visualizes uh, roads and environments and all that stuff, right? And maybe it's something that sounded interesting, but in the end it clicked. It's like, hey, you know what? That's actually a huge deal. So is there is there such a moment or maybe, I don't know, you read uh, Sherlock Holmes or Agatha I mean, Christie? I mean, that's, 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 actually, that's actually a very deep question, but the answer in my case is not not complicated. You think about three years at 8200 and the... Mm-hmm amount of times where you've seen with your own eyes how proper real-time robust smart data analysis saves lives prevents wars uh prevents terror attacks the ability to correlate data from different angles and make that data easy to digest to any analyst sitting on the desk and how that can save lives like literally hundreds of lives maybe you can underestimate the the importance of, of, of the level of analysis that data can go through, and you you're getting a really good school to where where data analysis can get because it's like ten years ahead of where the world was when I when I released from the army and I you know you, you go into this commercial company that's an asset company very successful and you're looking at the products and you're saying wow you know where you know the world is like ten years behind where it can yep. Um, and then I read this very interesting article about the guy who took over the Shabak, the internal, you know, intelligence uh, uh, unit for Israel, after the murder of the Israeli prime minister, um, Robin. So, you know, back then the Shabak was on the, on the ground. Uh, there were a lot of terror attacks inside Israel. Prime minister just got murdered. They were very low. And he got in. And he uh, said that the first thing that he's done, he called all the managers of the departments and says, you listen, let's have an open conversation. I know the situation is bad. I'm going to ask you questions. I'll accept any answer. But if anyone says this is how we've always done it, he's done. And he started asking questions. And what he figured is that until then, talking 96, all intelligence records for the Shabbat were written on paper. He asked, where's the information saying? He said, oh, it's over there in the warehouse. It was shocked to see. And he's done a revolution that took three or four years. And in that revolution, they brought everything into uh, basically databases and data warehouses and created, started creating synergies. And it took another three years, terrible three years for Israel, 99 to 2002. But by 2003 or four, Israel was already capable of preventing about 95% of terror attacks. And by 2008, about 99.9% of terror attacks are prevented. Yeah. And this is, you know, when you think about how a country looks like when everything sits, nothing's correlated, everything's on paper, every other day, terror attack, bus explodes. And then how it looks like, same enemies, even more advanced now when everything's correlated and every phone call of a suspect, every move that he does is, you know, from, from the satellites to phone conversations to his chats is 
correlated and you can actually get to someone and wake him up in his bed and say, I know you're, you're planning a terror attack tomorrow. Yep. This is, you can't underestimate the, data, the, the importance of data when, when you see that day by day. Thank you for that context. You know, for me, living in Israel, I'm only here six months. And, you know, obviously I've been watching for a very long time what's yep. going on here. I have family here. It's my people here. Um, it's, it's in a way very strange because I'm, you know, I take the bus to Ulpan every morning, right? Just because that's what you do when you move yeah. to Israel. <laughs> Got to go learn Hebrew. And I'm sitting in that bus and, you know, once in a while my mind wanders and I'm like, holy shit, you know what? About 20 years ago, I would have been really scared to get on this bus. And because of, you know, maybe we touched the, the very <laughs> tip of the iceberg here of what's going on. Maybe you watch Fauda, maybe you don't. <laughs> you know, there's so much incredible work that's so many layers, so much innovation, so many, you know, 18 to 21 year olds that it's not just 8200, but that's that's maybe the most well-known, most prominent example of, you know, essentially people that are very plastic, they're young, they're brilliant because they're selected, you know, through a certain exam, et cetera, a certain selection process. They are thrown into this incredibly high stakes environment of literally life and death, right? And they have to figure things out very quickly and they're all working around the clock to do this. And there's, I can think of very few examples like that, I mean, around the world in any context, I can't think of the, the Pentagon doing this. I can't think of any other defense agency. You know, maybe some parts of NSA, yeah. CIA, they have some yeah. quotas, but it's not, it's not like that. There's no corps d'esprit, right? There's, there's not that special something that everybody goes through. It's just a professional army there. Um, this is very unique, and, and there's a reason. Again, I'm, I'm not I'm not here to talk about startup nation. Other people have done this much better long before me. Um, but there is that something that we even just in these conversations on this podcast we keep going back to, right? It's it's that people love to kind of take what they've learned from you know their their play doh. Their young kids get brilliant, and they have they're super curious. They're they're selected for that. Somebody oversees how their, you know, how their work is structured, how it's managed, but it's not over-managed. So yeah. that's, I'd love to pivot uh, kind of it's, the it's next part of our conversation. Incubator. You know, there are a lot of startup incubators, but yeah. not many actually put you in front of life or death situations and pour insane budgets into 20 and 21 people's, uh, year old people's hands, right? So... Exactly. I mean, the, the amount of budget we had in our team when I was less than 20, uh, I remember I, I have I remember one example that was like very, very strong with me, stayed very strong with me. I was, there was this critical thing that we needed to install on computers. And um, if you misconfigured something tiny, it wouldn't work. And then you had to reinstall. And to reinstall, you had to go through the registry and delete one by one. It will take like 30, 40 minutes. And then the, the unit commander came to me and said, listen, you don't have time for this. we got to get this ready tonight. So I said, you know, dude, I'm, I'm trying my best, but I'm, I'm installing. And then reinstalling takes half an hour. He takes me to a warehouse. He opens the door. There are like a thousand boxes with computers. He says, don't spend your time on installing. If it doesn't work, just take a new computer and try it again. And I've wasted like 25 new computers until we got that image ready. And then we started rolling it. 
And that level of budget just doesn't exist anywhere. And they give you that. And, you know, I remember counterparts, they were like, like from intelligence units outside of they were like 50 year olds, masters or doctors. They were like 19, 20. So that's, that's a good, a good uh, experience that you uh, get. And then you mentioned something about very smart about making conclusions fast. And that is the, the key power of data analysis. Data provides a feedback loop, a quick feedback loop. Everything we do in life, we learn it faster and we, come, we become better the shorter the feedback loop is. The reason people learn how to, you know, you never thought about how amazing that is. You put a kid on a bike and you just push him and suddenly he knows how to ride a bike, right? It's kind of crazy, right? Because it's not that simple to balance yourself on a wheel and keep going and navigate yourself. He's like a five-year-old. But what happens is that the feedback loop with bicycles is so short and tight. You move a tiny bit, it moves. You stop, it starts shaking. You move your body here, everything starts falling, you move back. So the feedback loop is so short, you fall four or five times, you already got the idea, you're done. And what happens with big decisions, what makes it so hard to improve, is that the feedback loop is very slow. You decide on a campaign, you start advertising or a rebrand, and a year after, you see the results. And now it's so hard to attribute something that you've done to the result. How can you really infer conclusions? But if the data is speaking to you real time and the feedback loops shorter, you start in that new campaign, and then five minutes after, you get a, a, an alert to your computer or, or mobile saying, we are seeing less sales in the last five minutes. Conversions rates are dropping. We're seeing anomaly in user behavior. Oh, wait, something that I've done. Let's roll back. Boom, it's back to normal. That's that feedback loop, and I can improve it out another campaign, another campaign until I figure it out. So that's the most significant role of data, to shorten feedback loops for engineering, support, QA, BI, marketing, security teams. And then when you stop thinking about different problems as different domains, you know, you got to need, you got to be a marketing expert. You got to be a BI expert. You got to be a security expert. And there are a lot of them today. And you start thinking about everything as a data platform. Everything is a data problem. And you're saying, just bring the data, analyze it and infer. It doesn't matter what the data is. I can see anomalies, you know, after seven years of looking at data and log data, I can see anomalies in whatever data you give me today. Give, give me like half an hour to analyze. And I can tell you, you know, from my experience, there's zero difference between analyzing metrics and log data and security information and the other type of data that I was analyzing at age one. It's exactly the same. And it's exactly the same skill set. And that is why it's so transferable. That's why you see so many people from 8200 working in the tech industries and succeeding. It's not like the tech industry in Israel is all homeland security, but it's just it's just all a data problem. And that's that's why I like this and this is why we chose that path. And now you gotta figure how do I scale this, make it economic, make it easy to use, make it pluggable to other systems, make it that it's easy to send all that data from all the other systems and have all the different stakeholders working against the tools that they prefer or configuring the anomalies that they care about. 
Okay, so clearly people are more complex, right? They're not just data points that are walking around. They're not just data generators either. So when you manage a company, clearly it's a very different uh, scale of things, and, and there are many more moving pieces, not least because people are complicated and, you know, life is complicated, and it's not just a COVID thing. It's It's just, you know, that's how it is. So aside from, yeah, sure, hiring people from 8200 that you already know that are from your, you know, directly from your class within the unit, not just people that went through the same system, not just people that see the world in a fundamentally similar way as infrastructure plus, et cetera. What have you found to be, you know, again, you're, you're, we have, we've had these conversations before, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to speak to you. Um, you know, what would you say are some of the most important kind of, uh, you know, low side that you look at within within humans. So when you're interviewing or when you're, you know, trying to solve bigger problems, you know, something that you didn't think about, how do you approach people? What what are some of the ways that you approach people management? Because that's, that's a big thing for me. Yeah. So there are some similarities and some things that are different between people and other, you know, managed problems or managed uh, challenges. First of all, we define our strategy of hiring. We define our, uh, you know, what's the what's the code of conduct for a company, and we've done that by observing what worked for us. We've done that only after we had like twenty employees. So me and my partner Yoni, we like observed who are the good ones. Is it necessarily the brightest ones? By the way, most of the company is not eighty two hundred or eighty one hundred or any of these. Beautiful. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's important for companies. So yeah. we started looking at what what is the what is something that is common to everyone? And where did we miss? Like, where did we hire people that we thought are going to be brilliant, but they were not great for the company? They're probably great on their own. And we figure that in our company, and it's really independent per company, we have three core values that we need. And we say hungry, humble, and smart. But then we write in that order exactly. And we found that people that were hungry will learn and to succeed and were humble enough to understand that they need to learn and cooperate and know how to ask questions. In Hebrew, you say, If you're shy, you can't learn. If they were humble enough and hungry enough to learn, even if they weren't brilliant, they were somewhat smart, they are very successful. And that's, that's the first thing that we've created. And then did go back to short feedback loops. So a lot of the companies would go and say, you know, we have uh, evaluations every quarter, every uh, half a year, every year. But that is exactly the long feedback loop. Even every week is a long feedback loop. And, you know, we've, both, you know, we've, been, we've been employees. You know how it is when someone comes six months after your last conversations, and it's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm unhappy with one, two, three, four. You, you need to improve that. And when I, and what have you done for four, four five, six, yeah. and it's great. I mean, even mm -hmm. if you do that once a week, it is very hard for me to really improve myself. And yep. we are fanatic about constant feedback to employees on the spot. If you waited more than an hour to give someone feedback about something you're unhappy with, the odds of him really improving are very low. And I find myself many times walking into the office. I have a list on my phone. And I go desk by desk. I'm like, hey, good job on this. Or, hey, 
this is great. What you just brought to production customers love it. Or, Hey, we, you know, this is not how we do business here. And, and you can't do this to a customer or you can't do this to a partner. And then these people, first of all, understand that sometimes, you know, it might sound like it, you're criticizing them too often, but in actuality, people love that because they understand that their job, their work is important to the organization. They understand that, uh, they understand that there's some, you know, someone in the company always looks at their job, evaluates it, and it's there to help them improve. It's really important for people to understand these, these things because now they feel valuable. They feel like they're being, getting coached. Obviously, you do that on the right way. You present it as data. You present only facts. You don't present emotions or feelings or I hate when you do that. Because that, that doesn't matter. That That's not a feedback loop. That's just insulting. Yeah. But you just present. You're saying, hey, in our company, we answer customers in under one minute on the, the chat support. And this is the data. And you it took you five minutes. This is not how we do business. And that's factual. You can't argue with that. That's a feedback that I just gave you. If you do that again, I'll say it again and again and again until you are actually formed into our company culture, or you decide that it's not for you, which is perfectly fine. And I think we I know, knock on wood and all the other superstitions, but uh, we have the lowest churn rate of employees, I think, in the industry, because people are feeling constant improvement here, and people are never surprised by the feedback that they get. So that makes it so much easier for us as management, because there's never big conflicts. There are always small correction points, and this is how we also externalize our service. So what I mentioned about giving support in under one minute is that we have a live chat support on our website and inside the app where we answer our customers immediately. We also do the QBRs every quarter with them and customer calls, that's fine. But we get constant feedback, small, you know, how water goes through stone much easier than coming with a hammer. And then that that culture is is baked into the organization, but you gotta have the right people. If they're not humble, if you come to someone who's arrogant and you give them feedback every day, they're just gonna explode or quit or something. You gotta be very humble to be able to say, I accept your feedback. I want to improve. I'm there. And if they're not hungry to improve and there's a, everyone can improve dramatically, not as human beings objectively, but inside a company, when you're trying to form yourself into the company culture, if you're not hungry, you're not going to do that work. You're just not going to do that, that self work to, to get there. Um, so when you hire the right people and you're coherent with your message, everyone are treated the same. You're treated the same. You're willing to walk the walk and you're willing to show people that you'll give up superstars. If they're not a cultural fit, yep. you basically get a company that, that acts the same way and, and, and externalizes that same behavior to their, the, the, the customers and partners. Just want to digest a few points and then I, I want to wrap up because I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I would say that, you know, for me, the as again, putting on my head of HR hat, um, coaching is is a big deal. I think not many people are taught how to coach. It's just sort of like, hey, go manage people. 
what what's that, right? And a lot of people fail that because there's no instruction, there's no freedom of thought, there's no freedom of expression. Nobody asks, "Hey, who are you? What do you what do you want from life? What do you want from this opportunity?" Right? So that's a very very important layer where I would say actually it's a huge friction point. A lot of companies don't give managers training. They don't hire with any thought of like, okay, this is just a resource. It's a, it's a designer, it's an architect, it's a worker, whatever. Right? So the, the mechanistic nature of approaching the people management side, often something is off because of that view. So I think what you're describing is, first of all, you're hiring people that are open. It's almost like you have you know two ends of uh, two different neurons, right? And you have to make sure the signal passes. And the only way that can happen is if the receptors are open, right? So both both things, this has to release a signal and this has to pick up the signal. And you have to facilitate that kind of, you know, interneuronal uh, place so things not only move well, but it has the right nutrients, it has the right things attaching and disattaching from those receptors. Sorry for going to neuroscience, but you got me, you got me going there. So I think it's it's a very, very important point that when you hire people, they have to already come with that. So, you know, we're not going to discuss it today. Perhaps we can do that another time. But the, the idea of how do you measure hunger and humility? You can observe it, certainly, right? You can maybe ask certain questions in your interview. But, you know, ultimately also people become less hungry and less humble because of their title and, and, and all of that. So we, we're not going to unpack all of that. But I just want to kind of put that out there that it's not it's not some like magic a formula or set of data points. There, There is some art to it. There's also a lot of emotional intelligence that you need to develop, you know, as, as a founder, as a leader, as a manager. I think when you hire people like that and you, you give them that freedom to say, you know what? Yeah, you have to be yourself. You have to believe that, you know, we're here to help you, not just to build a great product, but to become better as humans and as professionals Suddenly, people say, "You know what? I'm going to use more of my capabilities as a human as well." And, and that's why you really see that iteration to the next round. There's a set of questions we, we develop that we ask people to figure out some of these things, but also it's uh, you know again goes to the feedback. Whenever we've made a mistake and we have, and someone quits or we uh, need to let someone go, which is very rare. I so interesting fact. I personally never fired anyone in the company. Ever. But when someone, you know, just resign or something, we sit, me and my partner Yoni, and we actually make a, we call a postmortem analysis. Um, we talk about army service. What, Yoni was an air traffic controller. So uh, a lot of it is, is doing post, post analysis on every single flight. And he brought that, that mechanism on how to do that, which is brilliant. And then we analyzed where did we go wrong? What questions did we ask in the interview? What was the, what were the signals that we get the right references? And then, you know, at the first 10, it's a lot of art, like you mentioned. On the, the next 50, it's a bit of art, a bit of skill. But on the 100th employee, you know, 30 minutes are typically enough to know if, you know, it's this art type or not. So that's, that definitely makes sense. That's cool. We all want to know now what's what's in that questionnaire. <laughs> okay, that's that's a separate question. Um, cool. I want to wrap up um, as uh, we've spoken about, and as I've mentioned, um, you know, with every other conversation on the podcast, 
you know, the reason I started this is because of the book. The book has four conversations. Uh, one is about uh, your body, right? So it's health, fitness, nutrition, et cetera. Other one is about mental models and life skills. The third one is dealing with other people, which we've talked about at length, which I really appreciate. Some really, really amazing insights you've given us. And then the last one is about, uh, okay, you know, could be, you call it spirituality, God, universe, but something that is almost like a capstone. So for our listeners, you've been incredibly generous. You've given us some some really interesting things to visualize, to think about, and even I would say implement. What would you share with us just kind of in the last couple of minutes from any or all of those four areas that you apply in your own life? Uh, I'll take, I actually take the last one. So I, I had the privilege to, in my life, I've learned a lot of uh, Talmud and Mishnah. Um, and, you know, at the beginning they were laughing every time I'd give an example from that, you know, I, I always mentioned like every other architecture des- design review, I mentioned the the short, long way and the long, short way. Um, and uh, in our meeting rooms, there's the, the seven things that distinguish smart from uh, not smart and how you manage a discussion. So how you ask a question, how you answer a question, how you you know treat others. Uh, do you barge into someone's uh, things? Do you answer according to the order of questions that you were asked and so on and so forth? So a lot of these things... Uh, you know, I feel that helped me a lot. And you just mentioned about the neurons, one has to intercept and one has to. And what comes to my mind, the way that I describe it always is that um, in Hebrew, you say kli, like a tool. You have to be something that is ready to accept something. Oh. If you're not yeah. ready to accept something, then you can't, you just can't pour it in. If you're right. built, you know, if you're full of holes, you can't accept oil. You'll, everything will just pour. So you got to be there. When you come to work with the company, you've got to be there in your mindset, in your life, at a point where you want to improve and you're willing to listen, but you also also at a point where you want to give because we also learn from our, our team, you know, and we also want to get, we also want to get feedback. So if you're not, you're not in that position, you're not a tool to accept and give what we can get or give you. Those yeah, it's, it's <laughs> all of these things are infused, but nobody talks about them, right? <laughs> This is amazing, Ariel. Thank you so much. Such such an amazing conversation. Thank it's you such very a much. pleasure. It's great to be here. As always, great chatting with you, man. Thank you so much for listening to Commander in Chief Podcast. To apply to be a guest on the show, head on over to CICmediagroup.com backslash guest. CIC is in Commander in Chief. So that's CICmediagroup.com backslash guest. These guys. Help us spread the word about the podcast and our mission on social media. We're cooking up something truly special over here, and we really need your help to spread the message. The reviews, especially, are huge for helping us grow and get the golden nuggets of wisdom from our world-class guests out into the world. Go on ahead, give us a review or rating on whichever platform you use to listen. Our mission at Commander Chief Media is to help 100 million people around the world in the next 10 years to do their life's best work in the here and now through storytelling, education, media, thought leadership, consulting, corporate training, coaching, speaking, and authentic high-quality writing, helping people to become their own commanders-in-chief. And before you go, please make sure to hit that subscribe button for us here at the Commander-in-Chief Podcast so that you can be the first to know when new episodes drop. 
Let's not be strangers, friend. Okay? Please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever you hang out. And, of course, if you want to learn more about our work and impact, or just access some great content, plenty of that. Head on over to CICmediagroup.com. That's uh, CIC as in Commander-in-Chief, mediagroup.com. Once more, this is Yuri Kruman, and thanks for listening.